Two thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. This new solar generator has double the capacity and is expandable so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot Power Generators. Go to 4 slash Lisa to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4 slash Lisa. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon, and Time, is back for another round. We had a big bear of a man, who's called Mal Evans, who's our roadie, and uh, <clears throat> I was coming back on the plane, and he said, will you pass the salt and pepper? And I misheard him. <laughs> I said, what? Sergeant Pepper? Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Chris Moody, host of the new podcast, Finding Matt Drudge. I'll be taking you on a journey to find the mysterious media mogul Matt Drudge, founder of The Drudge Report. Along the way, I'll talk to people who have worked with him, dined with him, and fought with him, taking listeners into private conversations, all in an attempt to get a better understanding of who Drudge is and what motivates him. Hopefully, he'll even sit down with us. Listen to Finding Matt Drudge on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. They try to warn us about Joe Biden. Former Defense Secretary Robert Gates told us that he had been wrong on nearly every foreign policy and national security issue over the past four decades. Barack Obama said, don't underestimate his ability to F things up. This interview that we're about to do just really underscores those points. It's a breakdown and an in-depth interview and investigation on what exactly happened during the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. This interview is going to make you sick to your stomach. It's going to make you angry about that disgraceful chapter in American history. We'll learn things like that suicide bombing was avoidable. The fact that even after losing 13 service members, Marines were ordered to pick up human feces before they were allowed to leave Kabul to help the Taliban. I'm telling you, you're you're not going to want to miss this conversation. It's gut-wrenching, but it's important. We're going to talk to former Army Captain James Sasson. He's a co-author of the new book, Kabul, The Untold Story of Biden's Fiasco and the American Warriors Who Fought to the End. He served this country. He he was an Afghanistan veteran, or he is an Afghanistan veteran. And he co-authored this book with Jared Dunleavy, who's an investigative reporter who work for the Washington Examiner. We're going to get into all of it. You're not going to want to miss this conversation. Stay tuned for James Sasson. James, I know that you covered the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan and your new book, which we're going to get into. As you think back on, on what you wrote and what you found out, what's the biggest lie that we've been told about the withdrawal from Afghanistan? Well, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> We've got as much time as you have. <laughs> I don't know if I can, I can name just one, but if you allow me to go through a couple. Uh, the first was that uh, it was entirely unforeseen that the Afghan security forces would collapse. And I think that the reason why this is important is that you know, if the administration had just presented this choice to the American people, if they just said, hey, the entire state's going to go, you know, to hell, um, and the military's not going to be able to sustain itself. But we've done twenty years; it's time to go. 
I think that'd be a fair choice to put to the American people. But instead, they engaged in this fiction. Uh, you know, President Biden in in April of 2021 said that the the Afghan military was, you know, as well equipped as any you know, Western military, which is just patently untrue. And one of the things that they did is they cited um, this figure that that the Afghan National Security Forces were 300,000 strong. And I think at one point, General Milley, over the summer of 2021, uh, increased that number to 325,000. And the reason why that was just a, a complete falsehood was that, number one, there was a very well-known problem of what are called, quote-unquote, ghost units. They are uh, Afghan military units that existed only on paper. So that uh, you know the, the battalion commander or something could could pocket the salaries for those non-existent soldiers. That's one. But secondly, they also in- included in that figure all of the Afghan local police, the border police, uh, and you know these kind of smaller paramilitary units. That uh, you know we wouldn't say the the American military is you know five million strong because we're including the police force from Peoria, Illinois. Um, but but they they went ahead and did that, and we spoke to a few senior career CIA officials who said that their assessment was, without American military support, without contractor you know, support for um, all of the things that we are enabling them to do, um, the best case scenario was ninety days, and and the worst case scenario was thirty days before the military collapse. Um, and one of the pernicious things about that is that the the administration um, kept painting this rosy picture that you know the government was going to hold when all intelligence uh, reports and indicators said to the contrary. But what it did is it gave a lot of Americans who were there, who were working as you know, aid workers, worked for places like the World Bank, um, or even who were uh, naturalized citizens who had gone home to to visit their families, this false sense of security that uh, you know, there was time and that they could get out. And then lo and behold, it, it kind of collapsed overnight and they're stuck behind um, the Taliban with you know the Taliban standing between them and safety. But I think the second thing is that the, the suicide bombing at Abbey Gate on August 26th, which took the lives of 13 Americans, wounded 45 more, some of them uh, you know, permanently, there's a, a female Marine who's now paralyzed, sorry, Tyler Vargas Andrews uh, has, has lost uh, two limbs, um, and also took the lives of 200 Afghan civilians, that that attack was uh, not preventable. And it's kind of an, almost a falsehood on multiple levels. So first, they, the administration loves to cite the, the Pentagon report, and they quote it out of context, and they say, look, they said it wasn't preventable. This was just going to happen no matter what. And then that's not actually what the Pentagon report said. It said it was not, quote, tactically preventable, um, end quote, given the all of the strategic decisions that the Biden administra- administration made to include uh, abandoning Bagram over the advice of military leaders, which we know that um, the suicide bomber on the 26th, Abdul Rahman El-Lagri, who the administration has refused to even name to this day, was in prison 
at you know at Bagram when we abandoned it, and he was freed by the Taliban when they overran it on the fifteenth. Uh, so, the idea that just writ large this was just a baked in cost uh, is completely a falsehood. But even even then, I would say that there are some very serious questions about the even the uh, assessment that it was not tactically preventable. And uh, you know, for one, um, that again assumes that tactically we had to rely on the Taliban for our security. Ignoring the warnings, was that a choice from this administration? You know, why do you think they avoided the warnings about a, a suicide bomber? What do you think was behind the decision making of that? Yeah, I think they were they were fully aware of of the fact that there was a, a threat. Uh, even it's remarkable. President Biden on August twenty fourth even uh, you know spoke about the threat to the airport from ISIS K from you know quote prisoners who were released from uh, from Badr before, and uh, and so there were plenty. I, it's clear that this was. Something that intelligence had at Zion, um, but number one, they had already put all of their their cards kind of on the table in terms of the Taliban being quote businesslike and professional. That's the term that they used, and our security partners. Uh, and um, at that point, they'd ceded a whole lot of a whole lot of ground, and they they had no stomach for any kind of confrontation with the Taliban whatsoever. Uh, in fact, when we floated the idea of leaving after the 31st, uh, the Taliban basically stated in no uncertain terms, well, in that case, it, it's game on. And the administration just folded and abandoned American citizens. Um, but prior to that, this was a political decision from day one. One of the things that we report in Kabul um, is that our book, Kabul, is that in Joe Biden's first week in office, he asked his advisors, how quickly can we get out of Afghanistan? He didn't ask, how can we do it safely? How can we do it while you know, getting American allies and American citizens out? It was just, how quickly can we get out? And where this really came into play was Bach, because he wanted no more than 600 troops in the country. Uh, and, and that's something that we've verified and reported, and now other people have also verified. And you can't hold Bagram with 600 troops. And so the military was was kind of pleading to be able to hold Bagram and use that even as part of an evacuation. Uh, and they were overruled um, quite literally by Joe Biden himself. And so it was a political decision, not a military. Well, and that's interesting, too, because, you know, there's this narrative sometimes from the right about Joe Biden uh, because of his age, because of his... his uh, you know, clear cognitive issues that are going on that somehow he's just a puppet for people, you know, other people, powerful forces behind him. You know, what do we know? You know, you just talked about his decision making and, you know, what, what do we know about his decision making and all of this and, and Joe Biden driving all of this? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, and I'm glad you asked it because, you know, there, there are a lot of, uh, you know, questions and concerns being raised about how much the president is in control of, of the White House and how much he's making the actual decisions. And I think in a lot of circumstances, those are fair questions to raise. But here, as we lay out in, in Kabul, 
th this was Joe Biden from start to finish. And so if you allow me, I can give you kind of three different examples. First, uh, it's entirely consistent with, with who Joe Biden has always been from a foreign policy perspective. And when I say that, I mean, uh, one thing that we detail in the first chapter of the book is just to go through how he's been wrong about every single thing, you know, in the words of Bob Gates for, for 40 years. But when Vietnam was collapsing and Biden was trying to make his mark, it was too late to be an anti-war senator. And so he made his mark in saying that we shouldn't accept, in his words, we don't have a moral obligation to one or 101 um, South Vietnamese allies who helped us. And so that's, you know, it's an eerie foreshadowing of 40 years later of, of how we approached Afghanistan. But secondly, this is what he was pushing for even when uh, President Obama was in office. And you know, he, he was urging Obama to get out. And uh, Obama you know, was, was kind of sided with, with the generals over uh, Biden. But at the time, Richard Holbrook, who was the, uh, the UN ambassador for the, Biden, or for the Obama administration, raised the issue of what about all of the women and children, what about the allies that who fought along beside us. And Biden snapped, uh, you know, screw that. We got away with it in Saigon, didn't we? And so in one sense, this is very consistent with uh, who Biden is and what he's always wanted to do. But then as president, um, you know, we had some people in the room that he was making these decisions. And um, on top of that, he, uh, he got very involved in the first days after uh, the collapse and directed the military to, to quote unquote open the gates and to let as many people in as possible because there was there were a lot of pointed questions about the slow pace of evacuations and what that did is it put americans and afghan allies at the very back of the mobs uh were at the gates that's a reason why and military officers told the pentagon in their investigation, that's a reason why a lot of Americans were abandoned, because it came straight from the president that he was changing the criteria on the fly. And that, of course, makes his actions all that much more dishonorable uh, in the aftermath of all of this, with him having been at the helm of all these decisions. You know, we interviewed a Gold Star mom, Cheryl Rex, on the show, uh, who lost her son, Marine Lance Corporal Dylan uh, Marola. And he lied to her. You know, he, he said that his son came home in a, an American flag draped coffin, which, of course, that's not how a son, Bo, died who died of cancer. Uh, he checked his watch during the dignified transfer. So, it, you know, he turned his, his back on Americans during press conferences. So, you know, the fact that he was the one leading all of this and making all the decisions makes all of those interactions that much more dishonorable. It absolutely does. It my co-author Jerry Dunleavy and I had the just the absolute honor of talking to most of those Gold Star families, and I know uh, Jerry, since we published the book, is now working as the lead investigator for uh, the House Foreign Affairs Afghanistan investigation, and so he's talking to them, uh, you know, kind of even now on a more frequent basis. But every single one that we spoke to um, brought up that he checked his watch every time a flag draped cost like casket came off off the ramp at Dover and that he told them all the same thing about Bo and and even when one of the uh 
you know, the fathers of, of the fallen Marines showed a, a picture of his son and, and said, you, know, you remember this face, you need to remember their stories. Biden just snapped back, I do remember their stories. And, and to this day, he uh, he continues to just claim that it's a, a success. But he has never once in public mentioned the names of the 13 service members who were killed as a direct result of the decisions that he made. And uh, it, it's just unconscionable as a commander in chief. Let's take a quick commercial break. More from the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. Two thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. You could be one of them sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. Folks say this new solar generator from Four Patriots is worth its weight in gold. Why? Because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer or other devices like an electric blanket, microwave, RV air conditioner, or even an electric wheelchair. You also get 12 outlets, including four AC outlets so you can power more devices at once and two USB-C outlets, which can charge your phone 20 times faster than a regular plug. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot power generators. Go to 4patriots.com slash Lisa to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash Lisa. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts How could the most powerful man in media just vanish from public life? My name is Chris Moody, host of the new podcast, Finding Matt Drudge. I'm a reporter who's covered politics for years, and in this podcast, I'm going to travel far and wide searching for the reclusive Matt Drudge, the founder of The Drudge Report. Along the way, I'll talk to people who've worked with him, dined with him, and fought with him, taking listeners into private conversations, all in an attempt to get a better understanding of who Drudge is and what motivates him. I'll also be chasing down tips from you, the listener, through a special hotline. So if you know where Drudge is right now or have a great Drudge story that might help us better understand the mysterious media mogul, please give us a call at 301-200-2414. Hopefully by the time this show ends, the man who knows Drudge best, Matt Drudge himself, will break his silence and sit down with us. Listen to Finding Matt Drudge on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Cheryl told me that, you know, she's really having that all the families are just having the hardest time getting information from this administration that they're shielding behind. Oh, it's classified, this, that, and the other. You know, what do we know about what happened that day, that day of the suicide bomber that led to the deaths of her son, um, as well as 12 other service members? So what I can tell you is what we know about the few days before that, and then also about uh, what we know leading you know, on that morning of the 26th from Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews' testimony. Um, and working backwards, uh, Sergeant Vargas Andrews was a Marine sniper who lost multiple limbs in, in, in the bombing and was never interviewed by the Pentagon, by the way, in their report. Um, and he testified that he um, that, that there was a description of a potential suicide bomber that went out. A, a, a bald individual who with a very closely cropped beard, wearing certain types of clothes, carrying a certain type of bag, um, and that um, you know, his sniper team spotted that that individual, someone who matched that description, called an Army psychological operations team up to the the sniper tower to get confirmation. The uh, the psyops team confirmed that the individual matched this the, the description, and then. His sniper team, Reaper 2, radioed the battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Brad Whitehead, and asked whether or not they had permission to take a shot. And the response they got was, uh, I don't have that authority to give you. And when they said, well, respectfully, sir, who does? Uh, the answer was, I don't know, um, but let me try and find out. And then they never got a response. And the individual um, you know, kind of melted into the crowd later on. And you know, later that afternoon, there was, of course, a suicide bombing that everyone knows about. And uh, I want to be pretty clear about one thing, is that you know, uh, last week, General McKenzie stated that uh, there was no specific description of, of any individual given out. And he said he doesn't know, uh, you know where Sergeant Vargas Andrews would have come up with that you know, testimony, essentially, or, or that, that notion. But when you go back into... The witness interviews, the transcribed witness interviews that the Pentagon conducted with all the service members on the ground, there were several different individuals from different units who all told basically the same story that Sergeant Vargas Andrews did before he ever went public and while he was at Walter Reed recovering from dozens of surgeries. And, and that, you know, maybe there was a disconnect between what, uh, CENTCOM, you know, what, what the John McKenzie, who was the commander of CENTCOM at the time, uh, what was filtered up to him and what was getting down to the people on the ground. But if that's the case, that's a huge problem all on its own. Uh, but notably, the, the, the psycholo psychological operations team told Pentagon investigators that they had gotten that description directly from CENTCOM, which, which I think is very interesting. But working backwards, uh, there were two things that we reported in Kabul, which uh, we you know, indicated that if we hadn't chosen to rely on the Taliban, that there could have been opportunities to um, potentially disrupt or prevent what happened. So one of the things that we um, reported in Kabul was that there were, our book Kabul, was that there were two potential opportunities that to potentially disrupt or even prevent 
the attack from happening if we hadn't been relying on the Taliban for our security. And the first of those is that on August 24th, the, the military drew up a potential airstrike, which is a, a, what they call a targeting package, for an ISIS-K operative uh, named Tabir Aidi. He was in Nangar province, and he was a, a known distributor of um, suicide vests and an attack planner, and the Pentagon later said publicly that he had a role in the, um, in the Abbey Gate attack. And what it appears from reading through these sworn statements submitted um, by senior uh, military officials who were part of drawing up that uh, that potential airstrike is that it was deemed infeasible by the commanders on the ground uh, because of the quote unquote negative response from the Taliban. And what we also know is that uh, General. Um, Donahue was in, in constant conversation with his Taliban counterpart outside the gates. And, um, but crucially, the military executed what appears to be that exact same targeting package, according to this testimony, on August 27th. And then they killed this ISIS-K operative um, in Nangahar. And they stated that doing so prevented a follow-on attack. Um, they, it, military officials even told the Wall Street Journal that uh, this operative, Kabir Aidi, was, quote, planning another attack. And so it stands to reason that if by striking him on the 27th prevented a follow-on attack, there there's some legitimate questions about whether had we struck him on the 24th and not been concerned about the negative reaction from the Taliban, um, whether or not that could have been prevented. But secondly, the other thing that we, we reported, and General McKenzie actually appeared to confirm last week, was that the military asked the Taliban to raid suspected ISIS-K locations in Kabul prior to the, um, the bombing, um, several of them, and that the Taliban often refused to do so. And, and that, again, just, just drives home this fatal stupidity of relying on a Taliban, describing them as, as our you know, security partners. Um, and it's something that the administration cannot admit because they're on record telling the American people that the Taliban was businesslike and professional, and which, of course, are many other examples of where they weren't. And I can get to those in a bit. Well, yeah, like history, you know, like, like you know, yeah, like right. common sense. You know, you, you know I, I guess, you know, it, it, James. Yeah, it's like a, they're a terrorist organization. I mean, you know, what, what do you what do you expect? Right. And, and that really all begs the question, James, you know, why were we relying on the Taliban? You know, why were we relying on terrorists for the security of our own people? And our allies. There's a pivotal meeting that happened on August 15th when when Kabul was falling. Um, I, I would say there are two reasons. First, just the overall lack of planning and failure to to heed any of of the you know lights blinking red coming from Afghanistan from the administration. It was too preoccupied with you know COVID response, it, its domestic spending bills, all those kinds of things to, to worry about Afghanistan much. Um, so that's just kind of an overarching factor. But secondly, on August 15th, uh, General McKenzie went and met um, with a, a Taliban commander named Bardar 
in, in Doha, Qatar, and to try and work out a solution because the Taliban were basically outside the gates. And uh, reporting to McKenzie himself, the Bardar offered to keep uh, Taliban forces outside the, the confines of Kabul. And, and McKenzie basically said, no, as long as you don't interfere with our evacuation, then you know we're not trying to fight you, essentially. And uh, it's actually, since we came out with the book, it's been reported elsewhere that uh, Bardar even uh, turned to it to an interpreter and said, is, that, is he saying they won't attack us if we come into Kabul? Um, and so that, you know, in, in some ways, that decision right then was was kind of the original sin of, of a lot of uh, what unfolded afterwards. And it wasn't just relying on security. I mean, we, we kind of bowed down to them, it seemed. And, you know, I know that you guys reported that the Marines were ordered to pick up human feces before they were allowed to leave Kabul after we had lost 13 service members. So you're already reeling and already have the fear of having lost your teammates, and then you're ordered to pick up human feces? I mean, th that's disgraceful, first of all. And then secondly, why would we do that for the Taliban? It, it boggles the mind, and, and I have a hard time giving you an answer for why we would do something, a logical answer for something so illogical. But the backstory on that is is essentially that when we were closing down, the, the military uh, gave each unit kind of a, a sector to, to quote unquote demilitarize, basically to make sure that sensitive equipment and things that were in that um, in that sector were were kind of disabled. Um, yeah, for example, the engineers poured concrete over various pieces of sensitive equipment. Um, but the Marines from two uh, one um, second second battalion uh, first Marines who, who had lost. 11 of their fellow Marines, um, you know, for them, they, they, they took that to its, to its very fullest and they just destroyed everything because of course, why are you leaving anything to the Taliban? Um, they, they flipped over vehicles, they smashed TVs and, it, and they described that to us as, as basically a release. And, um, the day after when they were getting ready to depart, they got the order to go ahead and clean up everything. Um, and based on what we know, the, the kind of the senior most leadership at the airport just said that this isn't how we leave an institution. You know, this isn't, we take care of equipment. We, you know, blah, 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 which just shows the disconnect between the people at the very top and the individual Marines and soldiers who are manning the gates. And, uh, you know, they all, to a, a man and woman, all the Marines told us, you know, what, were we were cleaning this place for the Taliban. It's one thing if you're doing a training mission and there's another unit, American unit coming behind you. It's another thing if the Taliban is literally taking your base from you and you have to roll out the red carpet. Um, it, it makes it makes no sense. So yeah, so they had to go ahead and unflip all of those vehicles, um, clean up trash, uh, rotten food, um, and in this entire area where people had been Afghan uh you know, evacuees had been defecating and, and, and all kinds of other things. Um, that senior, one of the senior NCOs from the, the unit described to Pentagon investigators that um, it was just filled with, you know, people who had been defecating and doing, quote, other unspeakable things. And he, uh, he said it was the most degrading experience of his military career. 
And it's just it's just one more fact or incident that the American people have never been told about this this whole withdrawal. And that's why Jerry and I wrote Kabul, is because the American people deserve to know the truth, number one. And number two, we wanted to make sure it never happened again. Let's take a quick commercial break and then more on the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be. With the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X, folks say this new solar generator from Four Patriots is worth its weight in gold. Why? Because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer or other devices like an electric blanket, microwave, RV air conditioner, or even an electric wheelchair. You also get 12 outlets, including four AC outlets so you can power more devices at once, and two USB-C outlets, which can charge your phone 20 times faster than a regular plug. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot power generators. Go to 4 slash Lisa to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to fourpatriots.com slash Lisa. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before, tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How could the most powerful man in media just vanish from public life? My name is Chris Moody, host of the new podcast, Finding Matt Drudge. I'm a reporter who's covered politics for years, and in this podcast, I'm going to travel far and wide searching for the reclusive Matt Drudge, the founder of The Drudge Report. Along the way, I'll talk to people who've worked with him, dined with him, and fought with him, taking listeners into private conversations, all in an attempt to get a better understanding of who Drudge is and what motivates him. I'll also be chasing down tips from you, the listener, through a special hotline. So if you know where Drudge is right now or have a great Drudge story that might help us better understand the mysterious media mogul, please give us a call at 301-200-2414. Hopefully by the time this show ends, the man who knows Drudge best, Matt Drudge himself, will break his silence and sit down with us. Listen to Finding Matt Drudge on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we did leave billions of weapons behind to the Taliban, including Blackhawks. You know, what do we know about the state of Afghanistan right now? And, and do you think those weapons will be used against us in the future? Well, we do know for a fact that some of them have made their way into places like Iran. Uh, some of them have made their way into Pakistan. In fact, uh, the Pakistani government just 
five or six days ago alleged that militant groups in Pakistan are now using American-made weapons to to attack Pakistan. And Pakistan shares a large share of, you know, has a large share of blame for uh, failures in Afghanistan. So I don't feel particularly sympathetic to them. But the we, we do know that they're, uh, you know, they're, they're traveling far and wide on the black market. And almost certainly they will be used in terrorist attacks again. But beyond the weapons, um, we left behind a significant number of Afghan commandos who serve alongside U.S. Special Forces units. And we were able to obtain um, documents that are now highly classified showing that Iran in particular has been recruiting and debriefing um, those commandos about things like how U.S. Special Operations units plan for missions, what their capabilities are, um, how we react in certain circumstances. And uh, we also know that that Russia was trying to recruit them to fight uh, on behalf of the Wagner Group in Ukraine. Uh, in fact, there were Afghan passports found on the battlefield in Ukraine. Um, so that that's one of the things that we cover in, in the final few chapters of Kabul, is that unlike all of you know the Americans that the administration willfully left behind, these, these failures and these consequences are not going to stay in Kabul. Uh, they're going to be felt uh, across the region and across the world. And it's not just what we, we left behind either. It's also what we've allowed to enter into the United States. You know, there were reports at the time that the government had handed out blank copies of visas in Afghanistan, meaning that we, we weren't just letting allies on those planes that exited or, you know, planes, you know, in the aftermath of it coming to the United States. Uh, you report in your book that there were are, are more than 65 terrorists that have been allowed into the United States. Tell us a little bit more about that. And then, you know, how susceptible are we to a terrorist attack in the United States based on the people we've allowed in? I would say they're uh, probably that the security threats is probably that it's the term the government used. And so I'll stick with that. But that's, it, you know, it, six to one, a half dozen of the other, really. Um and this this goes back to what I mentioned uh, about President Biden change it panicking and changing the uh, entry criteria on the fly. Um, and we actually obtained uh, an email that the State Department sent down after um, that call that President Biden had with senior State Department officials, the Af uh, U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, um, and General Donahue and. Uh, Rear Admiral Vasily, who was in charge of U.S. forces Afghanistan. And what, what we detail is that they were very frustrated about the low numbers. They were getting pointed questions. And so what they opted to do was just juice their numbers by, instead of focusing solely on U.S. citizens and Afghan allies, um, to, to allow any Afghan who appeared to be part of a family unit or um, appeared to be, quote, at risk, and and then to err on the side of letting people in. And those are all directly uh, from Joe Biden. Those were his directives. And what that meant was that over the course of about 36 hours, you had tens of thousands of people on the airfield, most of whom had no connection to the U.S. government or to the Afghan government and hadn't been vetted at all. Uh, and um, and in fact, the military had to shut down evacuations 
for 24 hours to just deal with the overload. But what that meant by bringing all kinds of unvetted people in um, was that only after the fact, when they, uh, the National Ground Intelligence Center uh, compared fingerprints taken from, from people who were in, allowed into the country against a Pentagon uh, database of known security threats, did they realize that there were, initially they, they found 50, and that number has risen to 65 individuals who the Pentagon had flagged as, as security threats. And that included people's, people whose fingerprints um, had been found on uh, diffused IEDs in Afghanistan. And the, the, we have no uh, way of tracking these individuals. Now they're just in the country. Um, and, and more to the point, there are also plenty of people who came here and, and and, um, and I wouldn't say the majority by any means, but a substantial number who committed horrific crimes against children and, and, and women um, in terms of abuse when they were on you know, U.S. military bases. Because again, these weren't the people that we had vetted. They were people that were brought in because the administration wanted to be able to say, which now they have done ad nauseum, that it was the, quote, largest airlift in history. So we've now ceded Afghanistan to terrorists while also allowing these terrorists into the country where it would not be that difficult for them to coordinate with the people back in Afghanistan of how to coordinate an attack against the United States within our own country. That's a pretty accurate way to, to say it, Lisa. Sad as it is. I mean, this really is just a, one, a story of disgrace, right? I mean, I, I don't know if... I don't think there's been a time as an American in my 38 years where I have been more ashamed of my own government, more ashamed of my own country than what happened with the withdrawal that you know led to so many people dying. And then secondly, just a story of just utter incompetence, which just baffles the mind of how people who are in these positions could be so dumb, so disgraceful, and so incompetent. You're a former army captain. Or I guess oh, you know, once an army captain, always an army captain, and an Afghanistan veteran. Was it hard to write this book? Yeah, it, it, honestly, it was. It was. It was pretty gut wrenching. And it, when we started out writing it, uh, Jerry and I kind of thought that we had an idea about everything that that went on, and we realized that we, even though we were paying close attention and we were talking at the time um, to people who were on the ground, I, I was you know, trying to help get. Um, friends, interpreters out, and thank God we got a good amount of them out. Um, but you know, we thought we knew, and we didn't even know a third of it. And um, yeah, the, the, some of the the most difficult things for me to 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 hear were talking to these 18, 19, 20, 21 year old Marines and soldiers who were at the gates, and what they had to to deal with. Um, because I, I remember you know leading people that age and how. Um, they're, they're, they're all in and and they do so while trusting that the people above them have their best interests in mind. And um, yeah, as, as, as evidenced by this whole collapse, that wasn't the case. But they saw it. I mean, they, they performed heroically. Honestly, this was the average American at, at its very best and American government at its very worst. Uh, but but they, you know, they, they saw things like uh, babies being trampled underfoot um, in, in the mob right in front of them. Uh, there, were, there were women that were trying to throw their babies over the razor wire um, so that they could at least their babies could get out. And sometimes they uh, 
they didn't throw them far enough so the babies landed in the razor wire uh there were uh, the taliban was beating americans you know and and afghans and in some cases executing afghan allies in, in full view of these soldiers and marines and, and one thing that came up time and time again um during these hours and hours of conversations that that i had um with, with these with these soldiers and marines was the concept of of moral trauma um in, in that you know they're under the rules of engagement, they couldn't do anything. And yet they had to, to just stand there and witness all of this kind of just horrific, all these horrific things. And at other times, tell people that they were allowed in or they weren't allowed in, knowing that when they turned people away, um, that there was a good chance that the Taliban were going to, you know, kill them because they had tried to come to the airport. I mean, that just makes you, you know, even as you were just talking, I just felt sick to my stomach, just imagining these young men and women to have to see all this. And, and as you mentioned, to, to not be able to do anything when they're sent there to, to serve and protect. So I, I can't imagine how difficult uh, and I can't imagine how difficult to this day it, it's got to be for the people. to. I, that's just something you, you probably never forget in your entire life. One of the things that they said was was just salt in the wounds was while they were dealing with this seeing news reports from from the White House describing the Taliban as, you know, again, quote, businesslike and professional and saying that they were letting people through when they knew for a fact that that was not true. You know, and then, of course, they, they lied to us about the uh, aid worker that they they droned and, and, and told us it was, uh, you know, I think an, an ISIS guy and it was an aid worker and his, his kids. So, I mean, it, it's just it's it's probably one of the more disgraceful chapters in American history. You know, you, you had mentioned, you know, one of the objectives is that to write this book so that it, it never happens again. What do you hope the lesson is after writing this? You know, what do you hope we learn as a country, as a people? What do you hope our government learns after writing this book? I hope that uh, the decisions that that people like Secretary Blinken made, uh, Secretary Austin made, follow them for the rest of their careers and and that they you know in, in a just world they wouldn't be able to give a press conference without being asked to justify that the things that they did but on a broader sense you know the first step to to making sure something doesn't happen again is for people to know what happened and uh, the administration has no uh, absolutely no intent of of holding anyone accountable, number one, because that would have that would involve admitting that this was not a success, as they have claimed, but two, telling the American people the full story. And, and I think once people understand just the scope and the magnitude of the failure, how preventable it really was, and and that the, the human kind of suffering and the consequences, geopolitically even, that, that are flowing from this, um, the, the administration will have to account for that. Uh, whether that's you know next November or um, you know, or sooner than that, and we've we've been able to to speak a lot with um, members of Congress and obviously uh, Jerry now after the uh, congressman read our book hired him to 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 lead the investigation. So we're going to just keep pressing to make sure that there is a measure of accountability and and Kabul at least uh, you know writing Kabul at least for us was a start. 
Well, James, I appreciate your service to this country. I appreciate you co-authoring this book, Kabul, the untold story of Biden's fiasco and the American warriors who fought to the end. Uh, everyone should go check it out. Thank you for, for both your service and for putting in the work to write this book and, and bring it to the American people. Thanks so much, Lisa. I really appreciate you having me. That was James Hassan, co-author of Kabul, The Untold Story of Biden's Fiasco and the American Warriors Who Fought to the End. I mean, wow. It's infuriating to hear how this was all preventable, that those 13 lives were preventable. It's just disgraceful. But I appreciate him for taking the time to join the show as service to the country. Appreciate you guys at home for listening every Monday and Thursday, but you can listen throughout the week. I want to thank John Cassio, my producer, for putting the show together. Until next time. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be. With the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X, this new solar generator has double the capacity and is expandable so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot Power Generators. Go to 4Patriots.com Lisa to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4Patriots.com Lisa. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon, and Time, is back for another round. We had a big bear of a man, who was called Mal Evans, who was on roadie, and uh, <clears throat> I was coming back on the plane, and he said, will you pass the salt and pepper? And I misheard him. <laughs> I said, what? Salt and pepper? Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.